0: Heavenly Father, indeed you are holy, holy, holy. It is an honor and privilege to join together with all the saints in here, your children, and saints around the world, as we make much of your name and much of your son, Jesus. For he is the one who left the ninety-nine. He's the one who never leaves the one behind. Father, as our voices lift up to you in one chorus, I pray that it rises to you with a worshipful spirit, and in turn, would your spirit fill this room with your presence and your power and your glory and your majesty. Father, as we prepare to hear your word today, would you open our eyes Open our ears, open our hearts. Father, what we see not, show us. What we hear not, tell us. What we know not, teach us. And when we love not, love us. For the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Trinity. My name is David. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here today. And it is an honor to preach always. Thank you. But especially when Kirk and Shelby are on vacation so that they get a nice rest, right? We miss you guys. We love them. And today is their anniversary. So on the count of three, can we wish them a happy anniversary? One, two, three. Happy anniversary. All right, we love you guys. I think you're touring a volcano or something right now, so hope you guys are having a blast, and hope you guys are getting filled with rest. So today we continue our series, Through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we, We titled this series very simply, Following Jesus, because what we're doing every single week is we're marching through the Gospel of Mark, chapter by chapter, and at times, verse by verse, to see what it was like for the earliest disciples, the earliest church, Let there be light. (laughs) God, is that you? I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I've got to preach this first. (laughs) We're following Jesus to see what it was like for his earliest disciples to follow him, but not just them then, but us now. And we continue today. We are in the 11th chapter of Mark, and we're going to spend our time in verses 12 through 21. That's going to be our scripture for today. But I need to tell you two things up front. Number one, being ingrained in the culture and the DNA of Trinity, I do not see our passage today as a diagnosis of our church. In fact, I see our church almost as the exact opposite of what we're gonna read today. But it is a warning for us. And I will never preach around a passage. I will never, never navigate around a passage. I've got to preach what God's word says. And number two, the personal application of this text is like a spiritual MRI. Let it be. The Holy Spirit, let him speak to you and convict you. He never does so to condemn you, but only to continue to conform us into the person of Jesus Christ. Do not resist that blessing all right let's get to work now we're not going to be in these verses today but i have to clear up some potential confusion if you open your bible to the gospel of mark you will most likely see chapter 11 verse 25 and chapter 11 verse 27 but you will not find chapter 11 verse 26. never fear easy explanation when copyists of the new testament made copies from the original manuscript they always had to be careful to guard against what's called a sight-line error. And if you really want to impress people, it's called a parableptic error. And the error is this. When you have two sentences on top of each other as they would write them on scrolls, when you had two sentences that ended with the same words, it was altogether possible that the copyist copied down one and as he looked back, skipped down to the next sentence because they end with the same words. And so Mark chapter 1125 ends with your trespasses. Mark chapter 1126 ends with your trespasses. And so it is entirely possible that the copyist was copying it down and just skipped down to verse 26, thus eliminating the beginning of it. The earliest manuscripts we have do not contain Mark 1126. Mark 1126. But the earliest writings of the church fathers do. And so that is why some Bibles you will hold will have 1126 and some will not. But very simply, Mark 1125 records Jesus saying to his disciples, When you pray, when you stand praying, forgive anyone if you have anything against them that your father will forgive your trespasses. Mark eleven twenty six 26 posits it in the negative and says, but if you do not, your father will not forgive your trespasses. Got it? Easy. Parableptic error. All right, now that you think I'm smart, let's dig into the word of God. Again, Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 21 is where we're going to be today. And as we do, we're going to drill down to two main points. Number one, we're going to talk about the ultimate curse And number two, we're going to talk about the ultimate cleansing. You ready? All right, let's do it. Would you all please stand for the reading of God's word? Again, this is Mark 11, verse 12 through 21. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, He found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the penetrating truths that it declares today about how we worship you, about how we see you. Father, would you tune the dial of our hearts to your voice now as your word is preached in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. You may be seated. Alright, I feel like you guys are going to get the full brunt of my seminary training today. <laughs> Welcome to what's called a Markin sandwich. A Markin sandwich is what we just read and it's a writing style that is very unique to Mark in his gospel. And it works like this. Mark takes one story tells it twice and in the middle is something completely different that is what's called a mark and sandwich so we get fig tree temple fig tree bread meat bread that's the mark and sandwich but the writing style is very intentional he does this because he doesn't want us to miss the fact that the meat in the middle is explained by the bread on the outside makes sense there's a point to it he doesn't want us to miss the point of the story which is the middle which is the temple in this case and so verse 12 begins on the following day when they came to Bethany now we know that verse 12 is a Monday we know this because the previous day was Palm Sunday Mark chapter 11 verses 1 through 11 record Jesus's entry into Jerusalem borrowed donkey palm branches Crowds shouting their praise of Jesus, total fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. This is indeed the pre resurrected Jesus in his last days on earth. He is quite literally marching to the cross. And of course, he is executed on Passover that very Friday. He enters Jerusalem. But he and his disciples are staying that night in the nearby town of Bethany. This is most likely where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, which is two miles away. Now we're going to see in a minute that this context, this being Palm Sunday, Passion Week as it's called, this context is very important. Verse 11 tells us that Jesus and his disciples, while in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, enter the temple and he looks around but being late they left and went back to bethany verse 12 tells us they're on their way back to jerusalem they leave bethany and take the two mile walk back but on the way jesus gets hungry and he spots a fig tree with leaves on it the problem as mark tells us in verse 13 is that jesus found nothing but leaves Indignant at this, Jesus curses the fig tree. Now, what's the story here? This definitely doesn't sound like Jesus, the shampoo model that I know and love. In fact, the atheist Bertrand Russell, who died in 1970 but was and still continues to be very influential, marked these verses down as one of the very reasons that he could not and would not believe in God. So let's learn a little bit about the fig tree. The fig tree is unique in that the fruit comes first, then the leaves. A fig tree could have many as three harvests in a year, with the spring cycle producing what's called takish. I guarantee I'm pronouncing that wrong. T-A-K-S-H. You can practice at home. This means immature. They were like pre-figs. That would grow during springtime. But travelers on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, which was an 80-mile trek, would stop and eat these prefigs on their way. Now remember, this is Passover week, which means we're in the month of Nisan, which is April. This is springtime. Leaves on this tree means prefigs should have already been there. Now, in preparing for the sermon, I did a digital, obviously, springtime fly-through of the trek, the two-mile walk from Bethany to Jerusalem. And do you know what I saw? Trees, tons of them, many trees, many of them with leaves on them, many of them with no leaves, many of them with no fruit. So why did Jesus curse this one? because this one promised fruit. It was not cursed simply because it lacked fruit. It was cursed because it promised fruit and didn't deliver. This tree had all the outward appearance of fruit, but upon further look, it was counterfeit. And Jesus is using this. Perhaps his only miracle of destruction As what's called an enacted parable remember a parable is an earthly story that depicts heavenly reality it's an earthly story that tells of a heavenly reality but this is not some made-up story this is real time and remember this isn't about the fig tree this is about the meat in the middle this is about the nation of israel this is about worship about bearing real fruit for the kingdom of God. True fruit is the manifestation of inward health and growth. The leaves that were on the tree, the outward appearance promised fruit. But when Jesus gets there, it is utterly barren. And to dig a little deeper, the fig tree in the Old Testament was used over and over and over again, more than 70 times as a symbol for the nation of Israel, for God's people. When used in the positive, the fig tree represented national wealth and prosperity for God's people, a time of peace and resting in the provision of God. But when used in the negative, it represented the withering away and death of an unfaithful, and therefore unfruitful nation. Listen to what God tells the prophet Jeremiah regarding the coming judgment from the nation of Babylon. He says to him, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken away from them. And he tells the prophet Micah, What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept away from the land. Not one upright person remains. When Jesus walked into the temple on Palm Sunday and again on Monday, he saw the same Thing that he saw when he looked at the fig tree. The promise of faithfulness. The promise of fruit. And although the temple was physically full, it was spiritually barren. And it was barren at the exact time when it should have been filled with praise and glory and worship of God. Remember, this was Passover week. This is like the Super Bowl of Jewish feasts. The requirement for all Jewish families was to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this feast. The population at that time in Jerusalem would swell to almost three million people. Travelers from all over the world would come, and they would come to celebrate this feast. And when they arrived at the temple, were they greeted with thanksgiving and prayer and song and worship? No. They were greeted with commerce and abuse and corruption and transaction. The Jewish nation adorned with all the blessings of God. The Jewish temple filled with the very presence of God should have been a place where the spiritually hungry could come and receive and be filled. But it was a show. It was all pomp and circumstance. What was meant to be a center for relationship with God had become a center of profit for man. When travelers arrived for Passover, they were required to either bring or buy a sacrifice. In the rare event you brought one, you traveled with one. It was inspected by one of the temple priests for spotlessness. Guess how many made the cut? Not many. If you then had to buy an animal, first you had to exchange your currency for the temple Tyrian coinage. But of course, that came with a nice exchange rate fee of two days' wages. Then if you had to buy one from the temple merchants, the markup was exorbitant. And this is all taking place in the enormous outer court of the temple called the Court of the Gentiles, or the Court of the Nations the court of the Gentiles, where all of the foreigners could come in and find the presence of God. But the commerce of the temple made a Wall Street trading floor look like a library. Jesus sees this and explodes. He drives out the sellers and the buyers, flipping over tables, nothing carried through the temple. Absolute chaos as the Pharisees stand there in anger and awe and the people stand there in total wonderment. Quoting both Isaiah and Jeremiah, Jesus says, My house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And to translate it literally, Jesus says, You've made it into a den of terrorists. God's house is to be a place of relationship and communion with God for everyone. But God will not compete or coexist with secularization, commercialization, and consumerism. Both the fig tree and the temple were cursed and cleansed because they were promises without fulfillment. The temple had the profession of God, but it did not possess God's heart. It was religion without relationship. The curse of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple serve as stark warnings to all of us that empty religion equals worthless worship. Listen to what God says to the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus curses and cleanses. Listen to what he says about empty religion and vain rituals, about going through the motions. God says, what is it to me, the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. The fig tree in the temple, the history of the nation of Israel, and dare I say the nature of some of the Christian churches in the West, show us that it is entirely possible to be alive with religious activity, yet spiritually dead. Trinity, the second we prostitute the gospel, the second we deviate from our mission, the second we take the form of Christ without the substance, the second we pay lip service to the Holy Spirit but forsake his power, The second we exist solely to fill this room with warm bodies at the expense of saturating the north shore with the gospel. The second we put our hands up in worship but not out in fellowship. The second we produce attractive leaves for culture but bear no fruit for the kingdom. The second we compromise one inch of the exclusivity of Christ or negotiate at Satan's table is the exact second we will wither from the root because it's the exact second we are no longer rooted in Christ. Our God hates empty religion because it makes a mockery of the cross of Christ. And our God will not be mocked. But this is where it gets particularly challenging because I want to move from the general to the individual. The court of the Gentiles where Jesus cleans house this is the outermost court of the temple think of the temple of the of the Jews the the Jewish temple think of it as like instead of concentric circles concentric squares the innermost place in the innermost court was called the Holy of Holies this is where only the high priest could go once a year to make a sacrifice for the sins of the nation This is where the very presence of God dwelt on the Ark of the Covenant. And what separated the Holy of Holies from everything else was a large curtain, a veil behind which the presence of God dwelt. The veil was 30 feet long, 30 feet high, and five inches thick. It took a 100 priests to take it down for its annual cleaning. And on Passover, Four days after Jesus cleanses the temple, the lamb of God, the Passover lamb, he was nailed to the cross. And when Jesus gave up his spirit, what happened to the veil in the temple? It was torn from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. The veil was torn. No more separation between man and God. No longer would God's presence rest in the temple in Jerusalem. For as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, don't you know, my brothers and sisters, you are the temple of God's Holy Spirit living inside you that you received from God. You are not your own, for you were purchased with a price, the very blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You are the temple You. So brothers and sisters, when Jesus Christ sees our leaves from a distance and draws near to find fruit, and when he enters your temple, what will he find? In you and in me, will he find the fruit of the spirit or the fruit of the flesh? Will he find love or pride? Joy or situational happiness? Peace or division? Patience or worry? kindness or hostility, goodness or dishonesty, faithfulness or spiritual adultery, gentleness or harshness, self-control or self-promotion. Look into your soul this morning. Look at your life. Do you, do I profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ yet not possess the person of Jesus Christ? Do we play Christian dress-up every single Sunday, but look like the world and love what the world loves Monday through Saturday? Do we see the church, the bride of Christ, existing to serve our needs, or do we see ourselves in service to its mission? Are you more interested in being right or being reconciled? Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness, or do we crave the American dream? Do we laugh in his face when Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It should horrify us that we can prophesy in Jesus' name, cast out demons in Jesus' name, perform healings in Jesus' name, sing songs in Jesus' name, preach sermons in Jesus' name, write checks in Jesus' name, and yet he does not know us because we've never surrendered our life to him. I'm telling you, I wrote this sermon this week trembling at what the Spirit was showing me in my own life. And I've done my best this morning to preach the full counsel of God, to not dull any of the sharp edges, to set free the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, and prayerfully, you are now being shown areas in your life where your heart has not been an altar to God, where you're playing religious games, where you are, drive Jesus out of your temple, where you show leaves but no fruit. And if you feel now, like I did midweek, buried under the weight of this conviction, allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to shower you in mercy and lift you up into the light of his grace. Because when I read earlier from Isaiah, God's scathing critique of Israel's heartless worship and empty religion, I read the bad news but stopped short of the good news because God continued and said to Isaiah, clean up your act, do better, try harder. No, God said to Isaiah, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And 700 years later, God did exactly that. Where at the cross of Christ, the greatest curse was pronounced so the greatest cleansing could be produced. Not the curse of a tree, but of the Savior nailed to one. Not the cleansing of an outer court, but of your inner spirit. And Jesus did not go to the cross to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. Our text today, the fig tree, the temple, the consumerism, an empty religion. It's so easy to read this, hear it, and even preach it, focused solely on what we do. But this passage is not first about what we do. It is first about who we are. Every other worldview, every other religion, even culture itself, will tell you that if you want something, you have to achieve it. Who you are comes from what you do. In other words, being flows from doing. But in Christianity, it is the exact opposite. In Christianity, what you do comes from who you are. You do not achieve your identity, you receive your identity. If you're convicted of the word of God today, do not leave here thinking the solution is to do more religious things. If your faith feels hollow, your worship empty, your temple cluttered, or your mission boring, the solution is not more religion, it is more Jesus. Religion can only obligate you to good work, whereas the good work of Christ on the cross compels us. If you think your mere attendance at church pleases God, if you think your time, if you give that your time, and your talent, and your money, if you give that reluctantly, if you think you need to do two good deeds to pay for that last sin you committed, if you think you have to spend the rest of your future paying for the sins of your past, if your heart cries out for real relationship, but you pacify it with rituals, that is religion. That's empty religion. That is nothing but leaves and temple commerce. Jesus suffered and died, and rose again, and he wants to dwell within every single one of you to give you abundant life, not religious existence. But the only way to live and give this gospel is to first receive it. By the grace of God, may the power of Jesus clean out your temple, flipping over and driving out all that he is not, replacing it with everything that he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this text is particularly convicting in that it challenges our very identity. Father, it challenges where we find our value, where we find our worth father and then from there it challenges what we do may it never be said of trinity evangelical church of any church in the north shore father that we bring vain offerings father would you not hide your face from us when we lift our prayers to you but in love and in mercy And with a compassion as only you can have, Father, would you clean out our temples? Would you flip over all of the altars to all of the gods in our life? Drive them out. Because we know when you do, you never leave our heart and soul void. You fill it back up with your spirit. So Father, do a work now that only you can do. Convince and convict and convert by the power of your Holy Spirit for the expansion of your kingdom to the glory and honor of your Son in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, as we turn to celebrate together the Lord's Supper, does anybody not not grab a cup when they came in and needs one? One, two... All right, perfect. Our ushers, leave leave your hand up, and our ushers will will come around and bring one to you. As they're passing out the cups, I'll say, parents, uh, if you have kids in here, we leave that up to you as to whether they have professed uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, so you can make that decision for them. And also, you don't have to be a member of Trinity to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are united, not first by the church flag that we fly. But by the cross of Jesus Christ. So if you have professed faith in Him, you are welcome to celebrate this with us. And also, we make a point every week of saying, This does not save. Professing faith in Jesus Christ saves. Giving your life to a Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, saves you. Invite the kids in. Oh, kids, come forward. They're making their way in. All right, perfect. Thank you, Ashley, for telling me that. (laughs) Now, as we just read in our text, God does not like empty rituals whatsoever. And here we are at one of the two institutions that our Lord Jesus Christ gave us. And so before we take this, I just want to offer a moment of silence for you to get right with God if you've got sin on your heart that you need to confess, if you know there are places in your life where you've driven out Jesus, that you've declared him as Lord and Savior over everywhere else but not your money, everywhere else but not your family, everywhere else but not your health, just take this moment of silence and do that now so that we come to the table with a clean conscience. And God's word says that if we confess our sins to God, he is good and right to forgive Repentance is a gift of God. So let's take a moment now.